If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis 1, we're going to begin there. Um, but while you're turning there, uh, if you haven't been with us for a bit, we are in a series beginning to wrap it up, wrap the plane up, whatever that means. Um, on this series, uh, Loveology, looking at what the Bible has to say about love, marriage, dating, sex, romance, all things like that. And we are at the conclusion of this series. And tonight, we're going to talk about what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality. I know we were supposed to do two talks, one on this and then one on transgender identity. I'm sad to say we're just not going to have time to get to the transgender talk in this semester based on timeline and the marriage panel we have set up next week. But don't worry, I'll give you a few thoughts tonight. And I have, honestly, I have some books that you should read anyway if you really want to have a good conversation about it. So I'll give you some book references. You can read them over the break, um, unless you want to add more to your reading list right now this semester. Okay, so three books I want to recommend. I'm going to reference these a lot tonight. Okay, so three books to recommend. Number one, a mercifully short book on this topic that you could easily read in a day is Is, is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. Fantastic short book. I have these, but I can only give, I only have one copy, so I can't give you all one, all right? But um, we have that one. That's a fantastic um, short book, very helpful. Um, my number one recommended book on this topic is the one in the middle. You're going to hear me quote this guy multiple times tonight, but People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. He's a professor at a Bible college here in the U.S. I forget where. Um, fantastic book. That's my, probably my number one recommendation. Um, but number three on this is What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Um, also, this is a great book. Um, I don't like the tone of part of it, probably the second half of the book, but the research in there is fantastic. Some of the more academic things I'm going to mention tonight are probably coming from that book sometimes, but a really helpful book. It's also not super long. It's maybe 200 pages. And so just want to let you know these books are out there. But on transgender stuff, we can go to the next slide. Although we can't talk about it much tonight, I know I'm giving lots of books, but you know, get what you pay for, right? So um, the first one here is this Transgender by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, you can't see his name very well, but Vaughn Roberts. Um, it is a fantastic, very short book about um, the topic of transgender identity. Um, it's very helpful. Um, he gives you a lot of great definitions of some things to think through. He gives a, a big biblical worldview. It's helpful. The second one, God in the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker is a great book as well. He's going to give you a lot more info. It's more in-depth. It's, it's probably one of my higher recommended books for this topic is the one in the middle. And then the last one, uh, understanding gender dysphoria. I'm going to tell you, I don't agree with some of the stuff that Mark Yarhouse in the book says, but he's thought through this stuff very well as a believer. And he's a, uh, he's a counselor. He, he works in mental health. Incredibly sharp dude. If you really want to go in depth with some thoughts and, and, and things like that, if, especially if you're into um, thinking more through psychology, things like that, his book will be helpful. Although, like I said, I'm not going to agree with everything, but you may find some of his stuff helpful. He is a believer, a psychologist. He's a very smart dude. got some great things. Okay, but those are some great books to read if you're curious. And um, I say this all the time, but also know this is a conversation. So if you have more questions, anything you want to talk about later, this is not the end-all be-all of this conversation. We'd love to talk more about this. I'd love to sit down with you at coffee, talk about things like like this, and we can work through it. Um, it's one of the joys of my job is to, is to sit down and, and um, talk through these kind of conversations. So just want to give you some resources, though. Um, I expect uh, I need a book report on every one of those by January, okay? So does that sound good? Okay, good deal. All right. Um, but with that, uh, let's move into our talk um, tonight. Um, I give you all my references now, my bibliography, okay? Um, but here's the deal. So as we begin a talk like this tonight, I have to give a few preambles to help us remember and think through this kind of conversation. Because when we have this kind of conversation, the number one thing we have to think about is that this is not an issue that we're talking about tonight. This is not just a topic, but like that book title said, these are people that we're going to be talking about tonight. People 
who are loved by God, made in his image, that this not just people in the gay community won't have anything to do with the church today because of the hateful things they've experienced at the hands of the church, at the hands of Christianity. Um, I have friends who have that story. Uh, teenagers who experience same-sex attraction are two to seven times uh, more likely to commit suicide than the average teen who does not experience same-sex attraction. But we had to realize that this is having a big impact on the lives of teenagers and young people, the way this topic is being handled. Um, many people in the gay community, um, friends of mine who I even grew up at church with, many of the gay community grew up in church. They have a church background. Um, and during their teenage years, they experienced immense internal misery. Some of them cried themselves to sleep at night, asking God to change them. But yet the change didn't come, and ultimately they left the church because they felt rejected. They felt like they were called an abomination to the very God they loved and the people that claimed to love them. You know, that, that was their experience, and so they left the church. Or they maybe gave up the biblical teaching of, of sexuality because of this issue. Um, there's many Christians in the church today who struggle with same-sex attraction but don't want to talk about it because some of the hateful things they've heard by Christians and the harmful things that have been said to them even passively and unintentionally before. All right, this is all reality. I have I, numerous people I know who these, these are their stories, okay? So as we get into this conversation tonight, we got to remember we're talking about people, people that are loved by God and, they're, and they're, we're called to love as well. This is not just a, a conversation, not, not just a controversial topic, things like that, all right? Because ultimately, honestly, Christians, we've unfortunately treated homosexuality as this kind of ultimate evil and ultimate sin that someone could commit. And we really did a disservice to the heart of Jesus in this conversation many times. Because think about this. In the Bible, there are over 2,000 verses talking about the misuse of wealth. There's over 2,000 verses talking about being greedy. But guess how many verses there are talking about homosexuality? Six. Right? There's only six verses in the Bible that specifically... The conversation doesn't matter at all. I'm not saying that at all. all right? But we don't want to dare commit the sin that Jesus tells us, tells us in the Sermon on the Mount where we get blinded to our own sin. We have the plank in our eye and yet we're focusing simply on the sin of other people and not allowing the word of God to speak to us as well. Um, Preston Sprinkle, the author of that, one of those books I mentioned, had this great quote I want to share. It just really hit me in the heart. It's on the screen. He says, when overfed and overpaid straight Christians condemn gay people while they neglect the poor, stockpile wealth, and indulge in luxurious living, they stand on the wrong side of Jesus. That we miss the heart of Christ when we view other people as you know, below the grace of God, something like that, while we are, have that, this higher upper position, that, you know, that we're you know, so much more holier than thou, and we don't have the kind of compassion and heart that Jesus has for people that are far from him and who struggle in this area, okay? So we need to hear the words of God in that, but also we got to think about this. Uh, think about Jesus, the way he's described in John 1. John 1, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is described in a beautiful way. He's described as being full of grace and truth, Right? He's described as being full of grace and truth. And therefore, us as Christians need to be the same, that we are people of grace, but we're also people of truth. Because truth without grace is going to be hurtful. Truth without grace is going to be harmful. But also, grace without truth is also going to be unloving. Because then we're not honest about what sin is. We're not honest about what God's word says, what we need to repent of. So one without the other is not, is not faithful representation of Christ. So to represent Jesus well as Christians, we have to be people of grace and people of truth. People of love and compassion, but also people of truth and clarity. 
because clarity is kindness. We live in a world today where we don't want to, we, we'd rather disagree on everything and we have really difficulties in, in disagreeing and still loving each other. But being clear on what we believe and clear on issues, it's a kindness. It's a form of love, all right? So tonight what we're going to do is do is this. We're going to take an honest look at the Bible, uh, what it has to say about homosexuality, about same-sex relationships. And then we're going to, at the end, look at a few common questions that come up with that. Okay, But really a few reasons we're doing this. Number one, this is a conversation that culture is having that we can't ignore, that we need biblical wisdom on this issue. Number two, I want you to know that us as a church and me as a college pastor have thought biblically, biblically through this issue, that we care, that we don't want to just you know, throw away cliche statements, but really give you a biblical, um, weighty, and thoughtful com- um, commentary in this conversation. But also number three, if you're here tonight and you're gay, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want to let you know that you are loved and welcome here, that there is never going to be a day when you're not loved and welcome to Alberta Baptist Church, no matter what, all right? But we're going to be clear about what we believe, and you're going to find that, I mean, I agree to the historical position of the church we've had for 2,000 years about homosexuality um, being against God's design, but we want to be compassionate and look at the, God's word and see what it says about these things. I think we'll learn a lot tonight together, okay? So that's my preambles for the conversation tonight, okay? With that, let's get into the Bible. So let's get into Genesis 1. Uh, we're going to be in really four of those six passages I talked about tonight. Really, we'll kind of hit all six of them throughout the, the evening, but we're mainly going to focus on four. They're on your outline. I will go and tell you this. It's going to be a little bit longer talk tonight, okay? I'm not going to be crazy long, um, hopefully shorter than Colby last week, but, um, <laughs> but maybe a little bit longer, but I think every now and then we need a longer conversation when the topic is, is, is significant like this, okay? So forgive me if I'm a little bit longer than I normally am, okay? All right, but let's go Genesis 1. Go to verse 28 with me, if you will, Okay? We've been in Genesis 1 and 2 this entire series. Uh, we probably could have just stayed there the entire time and unpacked it. But uh, we've been there over and over again because Genesis 1 and 2, beginning of the Bible, it's God creating the world, creating humankind, man and woman. We, we've seen over and over again, there's so much in these verses. They are rich with truth about what it means to be human, what it means to live according to God's design. And that is no different when it comes to sexuality and homosexuality. So let's look at this. Let's go to verse 28. Um, God has created the world, created Adam and Eve. And he, in verse 28, does this. He says, And God blessed them, being Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now skip down to chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Go to 18 through 25, so you want to flip over maybe. Kind of picking this up again in the creation account. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an underline, or you may want to just, maybe not underline it, but take note of this in your mind, but I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a yet again helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Remember, she's the isha to his ish, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
All right, so we've seen tons in these verses about what, um, how Genesis 1 and 2 is a paradigm, really, for all marriages, right? We learn a lot from it about marriage, about relationships, even about what it means to be made as uh, men and women in God's image. But here's one more question we've got to ask about these verses before we finish this semester. We have to ask the question, do these verses really rule out the possibility of God honoring same-sex relationships in marriage? Is that really a valid option that we have? Some would say yes. You know, just because Adam and Eve were made as a man and a woman, does that mean that all marriages have to be only between a man and a woman? Well, I want, you to, I want to point out two things in these verses that we see about God's design for sexual relationships and marriage. There's two things we really see, and you can maybe write these down if you want to. They have procreative purposes in mind. It's okay if you don't want to spell that. I barely know how to either. It's in my notes. Um, but procreative purposes in mind, and they're meant to complement each other, all right? Kind of an echo of what we said before, but they have procreative purposes in mind, and they're meant to complement each other. So think about this. In terms of procreation, in terms of God's design, only two people of the opposite sex can fulfill that command to be fruitful and multiply and have children. Not that every marriage has to involve kids, right? Not every married couple has to have children, but it's an aspect of marriage. And we see it part of the creational design for marriage. So we see that in procreational part. But what about complementing, right? In terms of complimenting, Genesis says that Eve was a helper fit for Adam, right? But what does it mean for Eve to be a helper fit for Adam? What does that mean? Um, Well, we see in these verses that Adam is given the job of cultivating creation. But what happens? Out of all the animals that that Adam is naming in this process, we see, there was not found a helper fit for him, right? So God made the woman. And if you read an NIV, yours may not say a helper fit. It may say a suitable helper, right? A suitable helper. Well, we've already mentioned before that that word helper is not uh, derogatory to women. It's the idea of like, it's the kind of help you get because otherwise it's all going to fall apart and go to crap. So it's it's that kind of significant help, all right? Um, But we got to ask what's meant by a helper fit. Well, some affirming scholars, which I mean, when I mean affirming, I mean scholars who believe the Bible um, says that same-sex relationships are allowed. Uh, they would say that the Bible is okay with same-sex relationships. Um, some affirming scholars uh, would say that that word suitable or um, a helper fit, they would say that word simply means that Eve is a helper fit for Adam because she's simply another human being, that she's not an animal, that she's a human being, so therefore she's a helper uh, fit for him. Um, and that, therefore, sexual difference isn't necessary. That it can be a man and a man or a woman and a woman. But I would disagree with that because of that word suitable and what it really means. Or the idea of helper fit. Because it's a really interesting word. All right? It's the Hebrew word konegdo. Okay? You don't have to repeat after me. But it's the Hebrew word konegdo. And it's interesting because it only occurs twice in the Old Testament, both in Genesis 2, and it gives us a lot of insight. Uh, Preston Sprinkle, in that book I mentioned, says this about it. It'll be on the screen. But he says this about Konegdo. He says, Konegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it's a compound word made up of ke, which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. Together, the words mean something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. All right? So the idea is this. Eve is like Adam as a human being, but also different because she's female. She's a different gender from Adam. So it seems the case that Genesis is making for marriage then is that there's three things that are necessary for a God-honoring, God-glorified marriage. Number one, 
that both partners have to be human, two humans. Number two, they have to be from different families, all right? And number three, that both partners display sexual difference, that they are both of different genders, all right? And that makes sense considering if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, read the whole thing through, there's this duality in creation in that way, in the way God makes things in different pairs. If you go through and look, especially Genesis 1, we see God makes light and day, he makes heaven and earth, he makes fish and birds, all the way down to he makes man, uh, he makes man and woman, male and female. And how there's this duality there, this complementary indifference, which also, we, we can't do a talk on it this semester, but in terms of transgender, we see the goodness of God's design in gender. That God has designed us, and part of being made in, in, in his image is being made and created and given a specific gender at our birth. That, God, that gender is a good thing. It's not a, a system to be bucked. It's not something that we you know, necessarily have you know, the ability to just change and choose as if we're you know, kind of autonomous from God. But being made in God's image means we're made as male or made as female. All right? So we see that there. So anyway, so Genesis 1 and 2 would therefore lead us to believe that same-sex relationships are wrong when because they violate God's creational order. All right? They violate his creational order. Okay, so that's Genesis 1 and 2. Let's keep move on, keep on moving through the Bible, okay, in our kind of tour we're doing here. We're going to skip over Genesis 19. We're skipping over um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, it gets brought up a lot, but honestly, I think it has nothing to do with this conversation on uh, homosexuality. Because really, think about it. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin was not really homosexuality. Their sin was rape. Their sin was lustfulness. Their sin was, you know, depravity beyond everything in, in a city. Their, their main sin was not homosexuality. That's not the issue that they get condemned for, even in Ezekiel 16. If you go read Ezekiel 16, where God is condemning Sodom and Gomorrah through the prophet Ezekiel, he doesn't mention homosexuality. He mentions the fact that, um, that Sodom and Gomorrah was in sin because of their arrogance, their gluttony, and get this, because of their greed, all right? Their neglect of the poor, all right? That's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So I don't think Sodom and Gomorrah has part in this conversation. But let's move on to Leviticus, all right? So go Leviticus. No shame if you have to look up. Um, the uh, table of contents in this. Okay, but Leviticus 18.22, all right? This one gets brought up. Leviticus 18.22. This is one command. It says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Just a comment. It does not say that you are an abomination. I know people who felt like they've been called an abomination by the God they love because of their same-sex struggles. That's not what the verse says. It says the sin act itself is an abomination. That person is made in God's image. They love, they're loved by him, all right? They are not an abomination, but it, the sin is an abomination, all right? So that's what Leviticus 18.22 says, all right? But here's the deal. I get Leviticus is a very difficult book. No one would ever be excited if I said we're doing a study through Leviticus next semester, okay? You would all probably never come back, okay? You all want to sleep, okay? But I get few people enjoy reading it. It's where Bible reading plans go to die, all right? Leviticus is tough, all right? But here's the thing. Quickly about Leviticus, it's important to know. Leviticus has one word that's the theme, okay? What do you think the theme of Leviticus is? Any idea? Not God, well, God, yes, yeah. Holiness, a holy God, and how we live holy lives. Uh, the book of Leviticus, the whole point is to guide Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So in the book of Leviticus, you know, we have people who, we have a holy people with holy clothes in a holy land at a holy place using holy utensils and holy object, objects, celebrating holy days, living a holy law. All right, lots of holiness in Leviticus. That's the whole point is the holiness of God and how his people live holy lives, okay? But remember, every time we look at a verse in the Bible, we always have to study it in context, all right? So we need to look at Leviticus chapter 18 and even see the second half of the book of Leviticus and where this verse 22 fits into that. 
Because the second half of the book of Leviticus, if you go through and read it, which kudos if you have, but the second half of the book is divided into what we call the holiness code. Okay, there's all these laws in there, the holiness code. And they are, guide, they are guides on how the Israelites were supposed to live as holy people. Chapter 18 specifically discusses how Israel should be holy in their family life and in sexual activity. And I gave you a breakdown here. This is what Leviticus 18 basically says. It says incest is bad. It says taking a rival wife is bad. It says adultery is bad. Killing our children is bad. Homosexual activity is bad. And bestiality is bad. That's kind of all the outline there of those things. And we see this prohibition in verse 22 in the midst of all this other stuff. So, so the question then is, okay, what kind of homosexual activity are we talking about? Because I will say some affirming scholars have said this. They say, okay, Leviticus actually isn't talking about the kind of consensual, same, um, consensual committed same-sex relationships we have today. It, Leviticus isn't talking about same-sex marriage. It's talking about other things. They would say it's talking more about you know, coercive or forced sex, sexual assault, maybe rape between two men. They're saying it's not counting you know, committed same-sex relationships. But know this, in Leviticus 20, it mentions this same kind of thing again, but in Leviticus 20, it's outlining the punishments for these sexual sins that get mentioned in chapter 18. And the punishment for these sins in chapter 18 is that both people are supposed to be put to death. Now I'll say this, that's for Israel, it's not for today, all right, but that's for Israel, but the punishment is that both people are supposed to be put to death. But if you look at other parts of the law, specifically Deuteronomy 22, there's laws about what a man, what happens to a man if he ever rapes a woman. And the law in Deuteronomy 22 is that only the man should be put to death. Not the man and the woman. Only the man is put to death. Coercive sex happens and it's the man's initiative. He gets put to death, not both people. So in Leviticus 18 and 20 then, this can't be talking about just exploitive and coercive sex because both people are supposed to be punished. This is a different kind of activity. So really Leviticus is just doing this. It's giving us a clear and blanket statement that all forms of homosexual activity is against God's design uh, for holiness for his people. It's just making a blanket statement, all right? It's not being specific on purpose. It's making a blanket statement. But here's the thing. Is Levit- wow, does Leviticus even matter for us today? You know, commands in Leviticus like not to eat bacon and, you know, um, you have to not work at all on the Sabbath and you can't wear clothes made of mixed fabrics and you can't eat, you know, shellfish and stuff, you know, like how does that stuff not apply to us but yet somehow this verse does? How does Leviticus 18.22 apply if those others don't? It's a great question. Thank you for asking that question, okay? Um, but here's the thing. Christian tradition has given us this, that there's three ways we can break down the Levitical law, the Old Testament law. Okay, I'm not teaching a theology class. I want to just make it make this quick. But three ways to think about the law in the Old Testament. We can break it down into three ways. Uh, we can break it down into the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. All right, this has been the way the church has read the law for thousands of years, okay? Civil, ceremonial, and moral. And you can take every law in the Old Testament and categorize it you know, pretty, good, um, pretty well by either civil, ceremonial, or moral. And here's the thing. Um, what the civil means is this. The civil is all the rules that God has for the nation of Israel. And how he had for them back then. You know, the laws about how to punish certain crimes, things like that. Then you have the ceremonial law, like the sacrificial system, the feasts, the festivals, the, the dietary laws, not eating bacon, things like that. You know, um, laws about clothing, things like that. That's a ceremonial but then we have the moral law, which is the laws that tell us what's right and wrong behavior. Well, if you fast forward to Matthew chapter 5, remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, right? 
that we, when he came to begin the church and start the new covenant, he didn't come and throw out the Old Testament. He didn't come out and throw out the, the law of Moses, but he came to fulfill it. So what does that mean then? Does that mean that we just ignore the Old Testament, that you know, we don't have to worry about it at all? Does it, does it apply to us anymore? I mean, that can't be the case because, remember, Second uh, Timothy tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's useful to us. All right, so even the Old Testament is useful. So what does it mean then for Jesus to have fulfilled the law for us? How do Christians view the Old Testament then? Well, think about it in those three categories. Think about civil, ceremonial, and moral. Uh, civil law. Remember, Jesus has made a new people for himself in the church. You know, we don't live in a theocracy anymore. We don't live in ancient Israel under those laws. But instead, the church is now a new spiritual people in Christ. So those civil laws don't apply to us anymore in, in the sense of following them in that way. Ceremonial. Jesus' sacrifice, once and for all, made the sacrifices and the, festival, the festivals of the Old Testament, they're not necessary. All right, that was Old Covenant. That was the old way that we related to God. We can learn many things from them, but we don't have to go and sacrifice animals every week. Praise God, right? You know, I'm not going to, to Jerusalem every year for the Day of Atonement to offer my goat, you know, my, my sheep or my dove or whatever. All right, that's old covenant, all right? So that doesn't apply to us anymore because of Christ. But what about the moral law? And that's the idea we see is that the moral law still applies to us because it guides us in how to live holy lives with God. And we see that in the New Testament. Because there's no indication in the New Testament that Leviticus should be treated as useless to Christians. Um, Get this, Jesus referred to the book of Leviticus more than any other Old Testament verse. The verse, love your neighbor as yourself, that's in Leviticus. That's Leviticus 19.18. He referred to that verse more than any other verse in the Old Testament. So Jesus apparently didn't think Leviticus was outdated and irrelevant to life in the New Testament. And that verse is referred to 10 more times in the New Testament. Uh, Both Peter and Paul quote Leviticus as part of their call to holiness to the church. They don't think Leviticus is irrelevant either. So we see then, yes, the the ceremonial and the civil law do not apply to us in the same way anymore. But the moral law, things like we see in Leviticus 18.22, still apply to us as guides for holy living. All right, So Leviticus would affirm then that same-sex relationships and homosexual activity is against God's design. Uh, Romans 1, let's go to New Testament, okay? Fast forward to Romans 1. This one gets brought up a lot in conversation. Um, go Romans 1, verse 24 through 27. <coughs> Excuse me. The book of Romans, we've got to remember, was written by Paul to the church in Rome um, back in early first century. It's a church planning letter. But in Romans 1, Paul is describing the sins of the Gentiles. And I'll give you more of an outline in a second. But he's describing the sins of the Gentiles, and he uses this description that gets brought up a lot when it comes to same-sex relationships and homosexuality. Verse 24 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So one thing to note is this, that these verses have been used many times by non-affirming Christians, Christians that that don't believe the Bible says same-sex relationships are God's design. Um, These verses have been used many times by non-affirming Christians um, to honestly try to beat 
gay people into submission in terms of viewing what the Bible says. These verses actually sometimes get called the clobber passages when it comes to uh, conversations like this. But we got to be careful when it comes to the book of Romans because here's the deal. Like I said, the whole purpose of the book of Romans is for us all to realize that we all are jacked up without Jesus, that we all are completely condemned to hell without Christ. Chapter 1 of Romans talks about the sin of the Gentiles. Chapter 2 talks about the sin of the Jews, how they're just just as bad off in their own way. Chapter 3, the whole point of the book is Paul wants to shut us all up under sin to help us see that we all need Jesus, that we're all condemned uh, without him. Paul in no way in the book of Romans elevates gay sex as some kind of ultimate evil um, that's beyond salvation. His point is that all of us are sinners deserving God's wrath, but God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. That's the point of the book of Romans. So we can't let Romans 1 lead us to you know, clobber people over the head with these verses saying, well, this is what the Bible says. You know, well, yeah, it's, it's true and it's clear in many ways, but more than anything, Romans 1 should lead us to be broken over our own sin. Romans 1 should lead us to be broken over the sin of those that haven't found Jesus yet and to be broken over the struggle with sexual sin that many people experience in the world, especially those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Right, it should lead to compassion and brokenness, not arrogance and pride. All right? That's not the idea. But three things I want to point out in these verses really quickly about same-sex relationships. First thing to note is this. First notice that as Paul talks about sin, that he condemns any form of same-sex relationship, including mutual relationships. All right? Um, Yet again, some affirming scholars would say that Romans 1 is only about coercive sex or it's only about you know, overly lustful relationships like sleeping around, things like that. And yes, Paul does condemn that. He's not neglecting that. But he also just talks very generally about men having sexual relations with each other. He's just talking very general there. And also notice how he mentions same-sex female relationships, which a lot of history shows us that most female same-sex relationships at that time when Paul wrote were consensual. They were in no way power dynamic relationships. They were almost always consensual. So Paul is specifically saying that even consensual, committed, long-term same-sex relationships are also against God's design. He's not just speaking to a certain facet of them. That's the first thing we see. Second thing is this. Notice that Paul's argument is rooted in God's creation, not culture. It's rooted in creation. It's not rooted just in cultural Standards. Romans 1 is full of allusions to the creation account in Genesis 1. Just notice a few. In verse 20 of Romans 1, Paul says that God has been revealing himself since the creation of the world. In verse 23, Paul uses, the, um, he uses five of the same Greek equivalent words from Genesis 1.26. He makes a lot of allusions to Genesis 1. In verses 26-27 of Romans 1, Paul uses specific terms for male and female, which he seems to be um, referencing Genesis 1.27, talking about God creating us as male and female. There's a lot of language he's trying to connect. He's trying to make us think back to Romans 1 to see how every person in their sin has rejected God's design and rejected the way we've been made to live in a relationship with him. But it gets expressed including in sexual sin and same-sex relationships. Preston Sprinkle said it this way. I think he said it well. It's going to be on the screen. He said, in Romans 1, Paul says that instead of humanity worshiping God by ruling over the earth, they have idolized the things of the earth and turned their back on their creator. Mankind has departed from God's original intention, the way God designed them to be as gendered humans. Notice the pattern of exchange in Romans 1. Humankind exchanges the creator for creation. Females exchange sexual relations with males for females. Males exchange sexual relations with, with females for males. And all of this seems to stem from a departure of the way God designed us as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. So we see that there. That's the whole idea. And thirdly, we see this. Notice how Paul considers same-sex relationships contrary to nature. 
He used that phrase. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with that, but some people have tried to make more of it than it is. But that phrase really was commonly used by Jewish writers at the time to describe simply how something was against God's design. How it was against God's design. So Romans 1, yet again, reaffirms what we've seen so far in the Bible, that same-sex relationships go against God's design for creation. Last place will be, then we'll answer some questions, okay? Um, Go to 1 Corinthians 6, all right? 1 Corinthians 6. Specifically, verses 9 through 11. These are, these are ones that get, probably get brought up maybe the most these days, at least in terms of what I hear. Um, but 1 Corinthians 6, we've been in 1 Corinthians before um, in this series, talking about different things. We know that the Corinthian church had lots of areas they were you know, screwed up in. They were struggling in sexual sin in lots of different ways. Um, but we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, uh, this specific thing. That Paul says, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The idea is that none of us will inherit the kingdom of God (laughs) on our own, basically. We, We all can find ourselves in that list, all right? Um, but none of us will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A few things I want to point out in that. Um, in these verses, Paul uses two Greek words to describe men who practice homosexuality. He uses two Greek words, malakoi and arsenikoitai. There will not be a quiz on that, but just that's the word he uses. Uh, malakoi usually means soft or effeminate, and arsenikoitai means like sex between two males. So in using those two words, Paul is describing both the passive and active partners in homosexual practice. That word arsenikoitai from two words, the Greek word arsen, which means man, and the Greek word koite, which means uh, bed. And that's really interesting because what Paul is doing is this. If you go back and read Leviticus 18 and 20 in the Greek translation, because at Paul's time they didn't read Hebrew anymore, so they translated the Old Testament to what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you go back and read those in uh, Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, arson and quartet are the two words that get used to talk about men lying with men in those verses. And the idea is that arsenikoitai, that word, to specifically reference Leviticus 18. That when he's talking about these things, he's trying to make us think back to God's created order. He's trying to make us think back to uh, God's commands in Leviticus. He's showing that really his teaching and the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is in no way some kind of new thing, but it's consistent with God's um, design and and Old Testament law that's been around for a long time. All right? So he invented that word to point that out to us. Now, some people have said that, you know, well, yeah, well, Paul's not talking about the kind of committed same-sex relationships that we have today. You know, he didn't know about those kind of things. Paul was only thinking about male prostitution or maybe exploiting, young, uh, exploiting younger men by older men. You know, the kind of relationships we have today, the kind of same-sex marriage we have today, Paul didn't know about at that time. So he was, he was not condemning that kind of stuff. Well, the fact is, that's honestly just not true. If you go and read people like Thomas Hubbard, he's an historian. He's not a Christian, but he, he edited one of the definitive works on homo- homosexuality in the ancient world. You can go read it. It's a huge book, but it's called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome. He shows that a diverse amount of homosexuality existed in the world of Paul's time, including committed same-sex relationships. That Paul would have known about these things, 
His, writer, his readers wouldn't know about these things. And yet the word homosexuality wasn't invented till the 19th century, along with heterosexuality. That, that's a pretty new word. But in Paul's time, his history tells us there was a growing understanding of uh, homosexuality being an orientation and not just something you choose to express every now and then, but being an orientation. So, yes, most scholars agree Paul invented that word, us in a koitai, but his readers would have understood what he was talking about, all right? Um, and if Paul wanted to condemn only... Um, if you only want to condemn, you know, adult men having sex with boy prostitutes, he could have used specific words about that. Sadly, at that time, they, that was so common, they had specific words for that. He could have used those words, but instead he invented a new word to be as broad as possible to show how all forms of same-sex relationships are against God's design. He's not trying to be brash, he's just trying to be honest in that. So honestly, the, the point is this, is that to say that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, to say uh, that he's not thinking about those kind of relationships is just is not true. Because honestly, you have to do a lot of biblical interpretation gymnastics to get a different interpretation about what Paul's talking about than what he's just simply trying to say. All right? So 1 Corinthians 6, along with the rest of the Bible, is consistent in showing us homosexual activity um, goes against God's design, and therefore it's sin. And uh, historically, that's what the church has believed for thousands and thousands of years. Up until recently in the church, we began to debate it. All right? So that's the Bible. And that took a lot longer than I thought it would. So let's, let's make this quick to finish this up, okay? Um, so maybe you're thinking about a couple of questions tonight I want to quickly address, all right? So here's the, the but what about section, okay? Number one is this. Uh, but Jesus never spoke about it. So if Jesus never said anything about it, then, then is it really that big a deal? Well, yes. Jesus did not explicitly discuss homosexuality, but he didn't have to because Jesus was a Jew. Jesus came from a Jewish background, and he upheld all of the Old Testament law. He said he didn't come to throw out the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, right? We've already discussed how he fulfilled the law, so some things aren't necessary for us to do anymore. Um, but he didn't throw out the moral law, such as sexual purity. You know, if Jesus had differing views on same-sex relationships, he would have made that very clear, right? He, I'm sure he would have. But instead, he upheld what the Old Testament teaches about sexuality. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount... He really elevated the standard of sexual purity far beyond the culture of the time. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirmed what Genesis 2 teaches about marriage and how sex is only supposed to happen between a man and a woman in marriage. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And that means that, honestly, every person here, that we're all sexually immoral in some way, that we all sinned some way in that, that we're all guilty in that way. We're all guilty of porneia, of sexual immorality in some way, that we stand on level ground, that there is level ground at the foot of the cross, right? That Jesus doesn't call us to heterosexuality. Right? He calls us to be holy sexual. He calls us to holy, H-O-L-Y, holy sexuality, not just heterosexuality. He calls us to obey him with our bodies and use them according to God's design that sex between a man and a woman in marriage is the only design he has for our sexuality. All right, so we see that. Second thing, second question. Uh, but what about people who are born with same-sex desires and can't change? Well, that's a complex question. I want to really answer that with a few quotes that I think say it better than I could. Number one, the American Psychological Association says this. They say, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. So the idea is this. It's complicated. Some people may choose it, but probably not. Most people just, are they're born that way, and that's just how they are. 
That's part of their biology. But get this. I want to quote you two people. Both these guys are affirming scholars. They both um, are uh, living a gay lifestyle. They claim to be Christians as well. But they write this in response to this idea. Justin Lee says this. He left the church um, over this. He left one form of church over this issue. He says this. Just because an attraction or drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it a sin, and does it have biological roots, are two completely separate questions. And then John, John Corvino, he says, the fact, that, the fact is that there are plenty of genetically influenced traits that are nevertheless undesirable. Alcoholism may have a genetic basis, but it doesn't follow that alcoholics ought to drink excessively. Some people may have a genetic predisposition to violence, but they have no more right to attack their neighbor than anyone else. Persons with such tendencies cannot say God made me this way as an excuse for acting on their dispositions. So we would think this way. Romans 3.23, right, tells us that we all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. So really, many of our sexual desires, many times, can simply be wrong. They can simply be wrong and distorted. <clears throat> that even our very biology can be affected by the curse of sin, to where we experience sexual desires in a way that goes against God's desire. And we can be born that way, and it still not be God's desire for us. But... Consider 1 Corinthians 6 again, because this is so important to remember. Go back and look at 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You probably still have it open. Look what Paul says there in that. Paul's point in those verses um, is that we're all condemned in sin, but here's the thing. We don't have to be defined by that sin, that there is hope for us. Now, Paul says that we're washed, meaning our guilt is removed, that we're sanctified, meaning that we're set apart um, by God for service to him. That we're justified, that the penalty for our sin has been canceled because the debt has been paid in full. But notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say in this verses that our sinful desires are going to disappear when we, when we become a Christian. He doesn't say that the temptations and the struggles we have are going to, just going to go away. You know, God can heal any person of any sinful desire they have when they become a Christian. Someone who struggles with pornography addiction can become a Christian and God can wipe that out and they can be, become completely whole in that. But that's not always the case. I know many people that that's not the case. They still struggle in that way. That when we become a Christian, God has not promised to eradicate all sinful desires um, that we have. You know, some people have testimonies of being changed. They've come out of a gay lifestyle and they've had completely different um, changes in feelings and attraction. But God doesn't promise that. God doesn't promise that at all. I love the way J.D. Greer says it. J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he said this way. He said, God's grace in your life may not be the removal of the desire. It may be his enablement for you to struggle against it faithfully for the rest of your life with the assurance that you are in Christ, washed, sanctified, and justified. That he will no longer hold your sins against you as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed the guilt of our transgressions from us. That many times God's grace in our life is to empower us to say no to sin, not just to take away the temptation and to take away the struggle. Last question, and we'll wrap up with this, all right? <clears throat> is this unfair to people? Is it unfair to people who struggle with same-sex attraction? And I'll be honest, this is a really hard one. This is a really, really hard one, and I, I've struggled with this one a lot. Um, because there are many Christians in the world that understand what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, and they want to live holy lives according to God's design, but yet they struggle with being attracted to people of same-sex, and they don't know what to do. Like, imagine being told, 
that because of your orientation, you can never marry someone. You can never start a family. You can never have a sexual relationship with someone. And that's what celibate Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction are facing. That when they hit puberty and everyone else is going out and starting to like girls and going on dates, they didn't have that feeling and they begin to wonder what's wrong with me. Is something wrong with me? Have I not, have I not prayed enough? Am I in sin? What can I do? And it may be never change and they feel stuck and they feel trapped and they feel hopeless. Because in the church, many times they feel like they're, they have to live in a corner and, and never talk about it because of the struggle. And they just are, are on their own in that way. That's the story of many Christians. And we've got to make some changes about that. But here's the thing. First thing we need to know is this. That feelings of same-sex attraction are not sinful in and of themselves. Feelings of same-sex attraction are not sinful in and of themselves. Why is that the case? Because it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted but never sinned. Right? So if it's not a sin to be tempted, then sometimes the feelings of same-sex attraction are not sinful in and of themselves. But either way, you know, every Christian, however we're attracted, we're all called to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves and follow Jesus in obedience. That we're all called to flee sexual sin outside of marriage, no matter how we feel attracted. And the only natural expression and God-designed expression of sexuality is in with marriage to our spouse. Um, Yes, some, some gay people do experience change in their sexual desires, and that's possible, and it's, it's good to pray for that. But just because change is possible doesn't mean that it's promised. But sometimes, like I said, great, God's grace is to empower us in the midst of the struggle, not to remove the struggle. Consider Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about the thorn in the flesh that he had, and he prayed to God to take it away, but God said, no, actually, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In the meantime, the most powerful way we can experience God's grace and love and power in our lives is when we're weak and we struggle against our flesh. That's some of the ways we experience the most significant amount of his power and his love for us. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's true, all right? And even when it comes to singleness, remember the whole talk we had on singleness a few weeks ago? Like, you know, both singleness and marriage are good states in and of themselves. They're gifts of grace that God has given us, and he wants to empower us where we live. So if God does call someone to live a single life based on their orientation and their struggle, God's not going to leave them alone in that. But he will empower them and be with them in the midst of it. But it doesn't mean it's easy at all, you know. Uh, and honestly, we, we need to have way more compassion in the church for people that are struggling with same-sex attraction. We don't want them to feel like they have to, to struggle with this in a corner by themselves in the dark. They need the love and community of the church. They need to be known and loved and not feel like they're on their own. Because the church is meant to be the family of God, right, in a place of community and companionship. We've done really a disservice to many people by elevating the nuclear family, you know, a couple of kids and a dog and white picket fence, as the ultimate life to be lived. Instead of showing that life in the family of God and really finding your identity in Christ, it's much better than finding your identity in anything else, including a family. Family's awesome, but it's not the end-all, be-all of life, right? We're made to know Jesus and make him known. And we're going to do a disservice to the LGBT community. And we're never going to, ha- uh, gay people will never feel like they have a real place in the church as long as we um, never talk about these issues and feel like they have to struggle with them in a corner on their own. All right. And last thing is this, and we'll wrap up with this tonight. All right. No, it's been a lot. But as we wrap up, let's yet again consider the grace in the truth of Jesus and what it means to walk in this. Because last year we preached through, through the Sermon on the Mount. You may have been here for that. Um, but in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, 
when Jesus came to earth, we see that Jesus himself uh, preached really the highest sexual ethic that you probably will ever find anybody to have ever preached. You know, Jesus taught that, that only sex happening in marriage is according to God's design. He taught that you should never divorce anyone except for some very extreme circumstances. Jesus' teaching on relationships and marriage resulted with his disciples saying, you know what, maybe it's better not to get married. If like, if marriage is that hard and your standards are that high, then maybe I just shouldn't get married. Maybe it's better that way. That, 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 that was their response to how high of a level he taught on sex and marriage. And he, he taught that and he held to that. But then also you have that truth of Jesus, but also consider how was Jesus known in the community of Jerusalem and Israel? He was known as a friend of who? Of sinners, of tax collectors, of prostitutes, you know, of people who, for, to, to being in the culture of the time, were, were outsiders. Do you, do you think that the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors and all those were trying to live up to the sexual ethic of Jesus at that time? Were they, were they trying to obey all the Sermon on the Mount and take all that in? I'm sure they were listening, yeah, but were they living that out perfectly? No. Jesus in no way pushed them away because of the struggles that they had and because the way that Jesus loved them where they were at, not, not letting go of truth and not shying away from God's truth, but loving them where they were at, that's why he was such a magnet to people. Because he didn't let go of truth, but he also held on to love. And he loved people where they were at. So the point is this, is that if you don't have gay friends in this room tonight, like if you, if you haven't befriended gay people, then maybe you're, maybe you're not walking in the way of Jesus the way you think you are. Maybe I'm not walking in the way of Jesus the way I think I am. If we think that our religion and our faith should push us away from the gay community, then we are completely, we, we've got it so backwards from the way of Jesus. That if we're ever going to be a faithful witness to people in the LGBT community, we've got to know them and love them and meet them where they're at. You know, not push them away and cause even more division in our country than we already have. All right, we got to be known in the ways of Jesus in that way. Because yet again, like I said, this is an issue. So this is not an issue, but these are people made in God's image to be loved. So two things, and I'll close with this. Like I said, if you struggle with same-sex attraction in this room, I want you to know that you're loved, that you're so welcome here, that we want to be with you in the midst of that, that we in no way want to push you away, that we are a place that welcomes you, loves you, cares for you, that we're not going to shy away from God, what God's word says about these things, but we're going to love you where you're at and help you walk in holiness and walk in uh, honoring God in your life. And if you disagree with me on this and you're like, Kyle, I don't, really disagree. I don't really agree with a lot of that stuff, you're still welcome here. We love you. We want you to be here. We care for you. But this is what we believe God's word t- teaches, and we want, to, we want to hold to it and be faithful to it. But I want to pray for us, and then uh, we will be done for the evening, okay? Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, the clarity of your word. Lord, we thank you that, um, that your word does not shy away from what is true and what's good and right for our lives the way that you've designed us. But also, we, we thank you that none of us in this room have become a Christian and are following Jesus based on any amount of good that we have done on our own, that we sang at the beginning of this thing, that we're, we're children of God by grace and grace alone that we didn't do anything to earn your love. So Lord, I pray that as we walk through this issue tonight, uh, through this topic, and talk about people um, who are loved by you, who um, and many of them feel just pushed away, and who knows what their relationship would be with you had not they been hurt by some in the church and by Christians. I pray that we would seek to emulate the love and grace and truth of Jesus tonight. Um, that you would, maybe through this talk tonight, give us a greater amount of compassion for those in the LGBTQ community, that you would give us an increased desire to want to befriend them, to love them, to not shy away from truth, but also to, to love them where they're at. I pray the same for myself. I pray you give us wisdom. Um, help us as Christians to, to be known a lot more for what we're for than simply what we're against. 
And may we be known as people of grace, um, people of, uh, of Christ who follow in the ways of Jesus. I pray that you would give these students wisdom. And um, as they're, they're walking through a culture, there's a lot of questions that we couldn't even just talk about tonight. Some questions that have no real good answer. I pray you give them wisdom and that your spirit would empower them to be faithful witnesses for Jesus in a culture that really sexually words are very confused in many different ways. I pray you give them insight and allow them to model your compassion and your kindness uh, in this culture today. But we love you. I pray for these students that you would send them out into campus into their jobs for the rest of the week to be faithful witnesses for you um, in all the places you've placed them, Lord. We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.